Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Cloud Wars Live, where we're examining today's digital revolution and all its various aspects, which certainly have become more profound and wide ranging, and I think quite personal to all of us over the last six months. Our guest today is one of our regular monthly digital all-stars, Tony Uphoff, who's the CEO of Thomas, which was a 120-year-old uh, family-owned trade media company until about three years ago when the founders and as well as Tony and the family there have been undergoing their own digital transformation, turning Thomas and its key data platform, ThomasNet, into a critical source of data and insights for the industrial and manufacturing markets. Tony, as always, welcome back to Cloud Wars Live. Hey, Bob, great to see you. And by the way, greetings from the West Coast offices of Thomas. So uh, we made the transition out from New York a little while ago, and we're going to spend some time in California. Good, good. And Tony, is it true that on uh, each episode you're on, you will, you will play and sing a song using each of your guitars? Um, Bob, that's without question. I, I think the, the real question is, do you want to edit that out and not subject your listeners to uh, my lack of skill or musical ability? <laughs> no, no, no. I see this happening. It could be an offshoot, Cloud Wars Live. Right. Uh, you know, unplugged. Yes, yes. Unplugged. Yeah, I yeah, like it. Yeah. I like it. All right. I think uh, Dr. Lockhead's going to give you a run there. But uh, there you go. We'll see. We'll see. Tony, well, the place looks great. I, I hope it's been a nice experience on the West Coast for you. And you. Um, as always, I think, Tony, you've come up with some interesting ideas. And I just as a reminder to the audience, you know, from Tony's perspective with Thomas, uh, the company and a lot of the services that Thomas has created allows it to see emerging patterns in what manufacturing companies and industrial companies are trying to source what they're buying uh, shifts in the nature of that whole business supply chains and so forth like that so it's great that tony you've got this really at ringside seat there being able to watch some profound changes in industrial markets and what's going on there so it looks like today as always you've come uh, with some interesting ideas to chat about yeah you know bob it's interesting so as as you and i have talked about before we do have this rather unique window into the industrial economy. Every second someone's evaluating or sourcing a product or evaluating a supplier on thomasnet.com. And I think we're a little over three petabytes of buyer behavior data and growing. So it gives us this rather interesting view. We also have about 11,000 customers that we spend a tremendous amount of time. And these are advertisers looking to reach engineers and procurement managers uh, on the platform. And one of the things that's been coming up a lot with customers is they're working with their own customers around what they're now referring to as the customer experience. And for many folks, um, particularly companies that are perhaps coming from a software background, this idea of the customer experience, and I think it's increasingly true in, in what I'll call modern product design today, but a lot of manufacturing companies have not thought about the customer experience. What they've thought about is customer service. You know, I have a, I have a good customer. I, I manufacture for uh, a component for Tesla and they've got a three-year agreement with me. It's for X volume each month. And you know, the, the failure rate of those products and services is within tolerable range. And then customer service might be around things like uh, delivery dates, uh, price consideration, you know, changing of lot size or whatever, and the day-to-day and the -day relationship that you might have. 
what's starting to change for a lot of our customers is they're realizing that they can get high marks for a survey around customer service. But if they ask the same customer to give them perspectives around the customer experience, they're getting very different data back and the conversation is changing. And so it's, it's fascinating to us uh, that we think we're starting to see a little bit of a shift in the way that companies start to think about this. And, you know, a, a simple example, Bob, would be if I go through two-step distribution, I might do a customer service audit and everything looks great. If I do a customer experience audit, I might hear something very different depending on touch points. And so we think we're at the early stages of the manufacturing industry start to look at the world a little differently. And I'm not saying customer service doesn't matter. I'm not saying that at all, but perhaps the preemptive approach to understanding at a very level, the customer experience might actually be the best customer service that you provide. Yeah, that Tony, that's wild. A couple of thoughts on that one. I think sometimes we fall into a trap of thinking it's an either or. I can yeah. do the service or the yeah. experience thing, but I think what you're saying here is it's in it's indeed both, but they are different. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had a chance to have a, a fascinating conversation with the Microsoft's chief medical officer, and a, he was making a similar point where he said that. Uh, when we talk about improving the patient experience in healthcare, said there's a lot of things you can do specifically focused around the patient, he said, but also a big component of that is if you improve the experience of the clinician, then the clinician will be able to help drive a better experience back sure. over to the patient. So each, sure. as you're describing there, each level in that chain has to be sort of a, on, on the same page, right? About, you know, are we delivering not just the service, but that higher level experience. Well, well, it's interesting and it's what a great example. One of our customers was describing to me that they had done for the better part of a decade, customer service surveys, and they thought they were really advanced at this. They would do them quarterly, they would compare them, executive bonuses were tied to these things. And he said, what was interesting is he said, we never learned anything from the customer service surveys that we fed back in to product development. Not once. He said, we started down this path of trying to understand, you know where I'm going with this, the customer experience. All of a sudden, it wasn't always bad news. A lot of it was, you know what I'd like? I'd like this feature, or I'd like this payment model, or I'd like this distribution model. And what he was saying is a lot of their best ideas over the last 24 months have really come by trying to figure out what are the right questions to ask and the touch points, which is a whole nother area of study, but to go after this idea of the customer experience, because again, as I said before, it's not always bad news. They're not complaining, but they're maybe observing something that you don't yet offer that you know could be a, 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 an opening for you to develop a new line of business. Wow, wow, Tony, it, it seems in some ways um, obvious, but it's always obvious from a distance. And then as right. you said, you get into a manufacturing era where for decades they've pounded, you know, service, service, service is the top priority then you get the two-step distribution and multiple other things. And uh, we can always invent ways to say, well, it's, it's too difficult. My industry doesn't really work that way. But 
the overriding thing here, I think, especially in today's bizarre world that we're in, that customer experience has taken on an elevated level, right? A, a restaurant, you know, says, oh, my food is so wonderful and so fresh, I, I can't be bothered with delivery or curbside pickup, right? Well, okay, you're going out of business. But you go ahead and, you know, you stick to your internal control. So well, every company's had to remake itself. Right, Bob. And you remember, Bob, the, you know, boy, I think... I think he, and he in this context is uh, the legendary Regis McKenna. I think he wrote the Harvard Business Review piece on, I, 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 I wanna say he referred to it as the, the, the product experience is everything or the product is everything or, or the total product experience. Maybe it's too, too, many, too many takes at that, but I believe that was it. And, it. and he was making the point that you just made, which is even if you don't control some components, the customer doesn't care. It's part of the customer experience. So if your delivery is bad and you say, well, I don't control the delivery. Yeah, you do. <laughs> it may be a different company, but you know, that's part of the customer experience. If, and I won't name names here, but if the delivery service that you're using is slow or unprofessional or um, the image is wrong with your brand, your customer sees that. Now you may not pay attention to that because you're just thinking, hey, who cares about logistics? Cheaper, you know, cheaper is better. So I, I think that kind of total product experience is a, is a piece of what we're talking about here. And for a lot of your listeners, Bob, they're probably thinking, well, this isn't new. That's correct, it is not new, but it is something that is increasingly an area of focus in the manufacturing industry, which historically has really been about capability because you know these capabilities are, don't come everywhere. It's hard to find these capabilities, and so once you find them, it's more really about you know, hey, I want to make sure that my customer service is good. Customer experience has been a, an area that hasn't been focused on as much in manufacturing. Well, Tony, you know, uh, a, a, a brilliant, brilliant mind that we both knew, and he's somebody who influenced my thinking as much or more than anyone else was the uh, former professor at the business school at the University of Michigan, C.K. Prahalad. Yes. And he came up once uh, with this idea about the three stages of competitive advantage. And he said that early on, he said it was manufacture and sell. And then he got into the listen and respond. And he said the third state, which I think we're really moving towards anticipate and lead. Yes. So all those things yes. that you talked about, it isn't necessarily new, but if a company chooses to forsake tapping into the uh, reactions, the impressions, the ideas, the innovation, and the great new ideas that are held in the minds of people who are giving you money. Uh, that, just, that just seems today like a, a terrible idea. That So the customer inclusion in that co-creation of value, co-creation of innovation, co-creation of just marginal improvements that cumulatively have such a profound impact, it all makes sense in this conversation we're having, but I, I suspect inside some companies, the cultural challenge to bring that to bear, because Tony, like you said a few minutes ago, all those contracts for years and MBOs have been written around service. Well, now we've also got to keep that at the highest level, but bring this other stuff into it as well. It, it's got to be hard, but that's some of the new leadership today, right? And, and, and Bob, to your point, I think there are also new technologies. Before we went on air, you and I were talking about edge computing and the impact 
that it is, but will increasingly have, certainly in the industrial marketplaces. And it, it's just really so inspiring and exciting to watch that. But you know, the days of having to do a survey that trails the customer experience by 90 days, and then you pour over the results of the survey and all that kind of stuff, you know, data plays a really unique role here, right? So, you know, if you think about edge computing, edge computing spinning out real-time data is a way of monitoring the customer experience based on usage. I think it was you that told me the shift that Salesforce went through, where instead of um, benchmarking their customer success folks on revenue, they started to benchmark their customer success folks on how much usage of Salesforce.com the customer was doing. And that sounds simple. That's a pretty profound shift. And I think a very powerful one. And maybe what, what I'm attempting to unpack here is a similar dynamic here around this idea of the customer experience and what will be those technologies and the data that will enable companies to be able to, uh, to improve it. Well, Tony, uh, there's uh, one follow-up point I wanna make on that. But first, I just wanted to offer a word from our sponsor, BMC. Uh, in a world that's changing faster than ever before, the biggest challenge for businesses is creating fabulous customer experiences. That objective requires actionable insights and real-time agility from one end of your business to the other. At BMC, they call this the autonomous digital enterprise, and they've put together a set of solutions to help you anticipate what's coming, adjust accordingly, and acknowledge those changes from end to end. To start your journey to the autonomous digital enterprise, visit bmc.com slash ADE. Uh, Tony, yeah, the related point that I wanted to make on that was, you know, the, uh, what you're an expert in, you and Thomas here with industrial and manufacturing companies, I suspect, you know, one of the episodes you did that, that drew the, the largest audience uh, four or five months ago was about, you know, Google's a manufacturing company, Apple, a lot of these companies that we thought were not manufacturing, in fact, are. So these definitions of what is an industrial company, what's a manufacturing company, it's moving and exploding. I think all those things of additive manufacturing are just going to add into that. And this notion that certain business uh, approaches and good ideas apply over here in these B to C worlds, they don't really apply. And it's just nuts. So I think we have to all uh, force ourselves to unlearn some of those uh, hard-earned lessons that have taken yeah. uh, years. We've just got to see the world through very different fresh eyes right now. Well, if you think about it, a lot of these terms that we use of identifying companies by certain categories, if we're really honest, they were set up for financial metrics and financial purposes, right? So, you know, uh, I, I, I've never spent time with Elon Musk. I would love to. He's, what a fascinating character. But, you know, he, he is positioning a company that bends steel for a living called Tesla in a very different way. So he'd rather not be valued as an auto company. He'd rather be valued as a tech company because it, it's, it's, it's helped in the run-up of this remarkable uh, company that he's developed. But at the same point in time, as we've talked before, he is deploying technology in a very different way. And I think we are at such a fascinating time, you know, whether you want to call it industry 4.0, which is one of the, the umbrella terms that's used, um, the IIoT phenomenon of the industrial internet of things, we're starting to redefine what people think of as manufacturing. And when you go down the list, 
Apple is one of the largest manufacturers, most valuable, and one of the largest manufacturers in the world. So is Microsoft, so is Google, um, certainly so is Amazon. And I think we're starting to, um, to reframe our understanding that this isn't our grandfather's uh, manufacturing industry anymore. You know, it's a very different world. It's a convergence of these remarkable digital technologies, along with, in many cases, traditional industrial manufacturing. Yeah, Tony, and the, you know, as you've talked about a few times here, to be able to capture that data, weave it in in the right way to help frame what's going on with that customer experience is so vital. And whether it's the industrial category where, where you're an expert or, or any other field to how powerful that is. So I, I thought it was intriguing that you wanted to follow up this notion about customer experience with something about data encoding literacy yeah, and what yeah. you see happening with that these days. Well, you know, Bob, you and I've talked before that, you know, and I'll apply this most acutely to the, to the industrial and manufacturing markets. I've had people ask me about the skill shortage and there's a huge skills shortage. And what that basically means is there are not enough skilled people to fill the open jobs in North American manufacturing. And I've been asked, well, are these white collar jobs or these blue collar jobs? And I, I kind of developed a catchphrase response to that of saying, hey, it's the wrong question. These are new collar jobs and they would represent what you and I are describing, Bob, this remarkable convergence between advanced technology and you know, the art and science, right? That's going on in the manufacturing industry today. And so we've been spending a lot of time just thinking through, well, as this transition starts to accelerate, what are the skill sets of this, these new collar roles, whether they be in manufacturing, and let you and I speak even more broadly, I think about it as our own company. <clears throat> and there are two that we're really acutely focused on, whether it be on behalf of the market that we monitor or certainly at, across our 375 employees at Thomas. The first is data literacy, and you and I've touched on this before. I, I really think that increasingly table stakes coming into a, you know, graduating in college, coming into your first role, or for those of us that have been in business for a while, I think we all have to lift our game in data literacy. And I, I'm not talking about being able to create a data uh, spreadsheet here in Excel. I really mean being able to uh, manipulate data, to be able to analyze data and to be able to spot patterns in data. I think is, is boy, I look at my own role, Bob, and uh, you know, I, I, I'm an expert on the impact of technology. I am not a technologist, but at the same time, boy, if I had to really up my game in understanding how to work with data. Um, and I think the second thing is, I think um, it, we've got these, both these programs happening at Thomas right now, I think, a basic level of coding literacy. So as an example, I'm taking a, a Python three course on Code Academy as we speak, wow. not because I'm gonna be writing a lot of code, trust me, uh, our, our CTO would uh, be sleepless if he, <laughs> if he heard that. But I wanna have a better understanding. Yeah, there might be some simple things that I could do, but if I look at the level of time I'm spending on technical issues, I need to up my game. And so, Long-winded way of saying, Bob, I think whether, whether um, folks that are listening might be early in their career or they're folks at uh, my stage or your stage of a career, I think these are skill sets that we all need to lift because I think that the, the job requirements going forward are going to require a, a much more facile ability in data and a much more facile or agile ability 
to understand, is this in the range of something we could build or do we need to partner for it or do we need to buy it? And so I think having a better understanding of coding, frankly, has helped me in that kind of decision tree of, hey, we've got a team of developers, should we be able to develop this? Or is there an on, you know, uh, uh, let's call it off the shelf, you know, package we could acquire, or do we need to partner with a development shop that's got shops that we just simply don't have? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Tony, it's a it, it fascinating as you you mentioned that and trying to put that into context. What is the realm of the specialist? What is yeah. then the province where uh, leaders and decision makers have to have enough fluidity or fluency with? the the technology the code the approach the thinking that goes behind it like is this tying in with where we all over as an organization intend to go or is this going to be one of those things that gets us you know three months behind on something and um uh, tony maybe if you'd like I'll, I'll forward over to you uh last week i gave a keynote talk at an event an online event it was called fierce ai week and one of the things I did within that, I just did a little quiz, you know, eight or 10 questions. And I asked people like, do you, is your company uh, data curious? Are you data literate? Are you data driven? And just, Interesting. you know, and uh, things similarly then about AI, you know, is there like the AI click over here that does all the cool stuff and, you know, they speak in a different language and other people aren't invited to eat at their lunch table and those sorts of things. And what I thought was interesting was afterwards, some of the reaction and feedback I got, these are from people with, you know, PhDs in computer science specialists in AI, been developing this. He said, those questions are really great. To me, I thought they were somewhat obvious, but we get yeah. up so close yeah. to the, the nitty gritty of some of this stuff that to come back and drive at that cultural side of it. Um, Tony, one other thing I just want to mention, because I think what you're saying here is so vital. The um, I had a chat last week with the chief digital officer of Novartis, certainly, you know, a new age manufacturing company. And one of the things that he said was it was important for people to understand in the company that only one in 10 of the molecules that the pharmaceutical industry as a whole create ever make it out of clinical trials and into actual the marketplace. One out of 10. Wow. And he said, what if you could make that three out of 10? And he said, right. you know, yeah. we can, yeah. we can do more surveys. We can, you know, do this and that. He said, this is a data problem. He said, it's a hundred percent. It's a data problem. And he said, it's essential then that we create a data culture here. So whether you're a biologist working with data, whether you're a data scientist coming in this way, whether you're, uh, you know, an AI specialist working on, uh, you know, deep, deep seated, you know, biomedical reactions that people are having out in the field, that common way of coming back to it has to be driven around data. So I, I think your idea here is fascinating, even up as you said, to that point of some coding literacy. Well, and I think, Bob, there's there's a topic you and I've talked about before, which is, uh, you know, the democratization of data. And all that really is, is just a buzzy way of saying, push the data down to the people who are proximity to an application to deploy it on benefit of the company or a customer, right? This isn't rocket science, but to democratize, democratize data, pardon me, we've got to have a certain level, right? Of data literacy, because otherwise it just exacerbates the silo. If, if all I do is, Hey, I got access to this data, but I got to go call this guy, Bob Evans to have him explain to me what it means. It defeats the whole purpose of what we're talking about. And I do think these things to your point are linked. 
is then, you know, having the ability to understand, you know, could I go in and, you know, work with this data a little bit? Could I write a little program that might allow me to uh, get an alert or an update? And, you know, I think these are, these are huge opportunities for us as, as we, um, as we kind of up level our own education and, and develop people. I, I think this you're going to see, certainly we're doing it in our company. And since we've done some of those things, Bob, it's remarkable to see where some of the new contributions are coming from because we're, we're attempting to democratize the data. And we've got people that are looking at all kinds of legacy data and spotting patterns that frankly, none of us ever saw. Uh, Tony, I want to ask you to talk about that some, and you know that you've always been a big advocate for learning and training, and now uh, because the online education, online training is so can be so powerful and so effective, and right in today's world here in August 2020, it's uh, there aren't a lot of alternatives, right, to you know that sort of training or education. But one last thought about the data, uh, I think somebody, an executive, you and I had. So admired Jim Barksdale who, from his days yeah. at FedEx and then over at Netscape. And he would often open up meetings by saying, I'm looking for data here, people, not opinions. He said, if you got data, <laughs> let's see it. If you have opinions, we'll go with mine. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's so true. And, uh, you know, I think it was Drucker that it, it was the actual person that said, you know, in God, we trust all others bring data. You know, there, there's a, there's a lot of these and, you know, I, I, th I think, you know, to close off on the data point, I think one of the reasons that for me professionally, I I've been such a beneficiary of coming of age at a time when these new technologies were coming online and, you know, really just benefited a great deal by this. But as my career moved along, I always thought I was data driven. And by God, I was using data to make decisions and being very rational. If I'm honest, I probably went through long periods of time where I simply use the data to rationalize whatever the heck decision I chose to make. <laughs> I chose to make. And having access to this is really giving me, you know, periods of, of great and positive reflection of really stopping and saying, hey, am I, am I feeling a sense of cognitive bias here or experiential bias? And really um, going to kind of second level thinking about Hey, let me make sure I'm really being analytical on the data and when in doubt, let me get a few other folks to look at this with me. And I'd like to think, um, old dog new tricks here, I'd like to think that my decision making is better because I think I'm being a bit more objective. Uh, people I work with are going to watch this and probably perhaps send me messages to the contrary, but uh, I, I believe that's what's happening and, and I aspire at least inside Thomas, but I think this is a phenomenon, Bob, um, that, that's relatable to a lot of people. I think you're going to see this trend of, you know, increasing data literacy um, and, and, you know, let's call it, you know, a base level of coding literacy become things that are a part of the paradigm of recruit, attract, you know, retain, but develop. How do we develop people inside our companies? And I think this, these are areas that'll, that'll really um, be important. Uh Tony, I want to say I admire your courage on, you know, shifting the way you use data because in the old way that you described, you were never wrong, right? Uh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Why? I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep looking to find that data to make sure that it validates the decision I made, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, my brother, the professor likes to say, you know, data will tell you anything you want it to say. Just torture it long enough 
right? And it'll reveal yeah. the secrets. Yeah. But Tony, talk, talk about what you're thinking here on the idea of online learning and especially the, you know, profound new importance it's taken on today. Yeah. I, you know, I think partly because of the pandemic, Bob, and, you know, shifting our own company and we're evaluating, we've been a, a, a customer, and this is not a promotion, but we've been a customer of a platform called Lessonly. That's exactly what it sounds like. It's very aptly named. And we use that a lot as an educational platform. We have a, an official data literacy program going and then we're gonna start a coding program where we're looking at providers of those. And these are all online providers. It, and, it, and it hits me, I also, as I think I've shared with you, I serve as a trustee uh, to a school called Linfield University. It's a liberal arts private school up in Oregon. Fantastic, has a nursing program and a residential uh, liberal arts program, really great school. We've had a, an online program there for years. It's a degree program. But if I was to look at it, we're, we're a bit stuck. And I think a lot of these, these online learning programs of we're not fully optimizing the online experience and we're trying to create kind of a hybrid experience. And I don't think we're doing a great job either way. I'll give you kind of a, a goofy metaphor. You remember when a lot of radio broadcasters would just simply set up a television camera and they'd go on television. Frankly, it was kind of crappy television <laughs> because one of the reasons you listen to radio is they're conjuring up imagery. And if they're sitting there just broadcasting, they're not really playing to the camera. It's kind of a goofy experience. I don't think we're there yet in online learning. And, and with respect to um, extraordinary, uh, you know, I was raised by academics. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of higher education by every measure, but I think we're missing the mark here when it is simply a professor teaching a course online, certainly that has value, but I think we're underestimating the potential of really leveraging an online platform that can pace along with students that can bring diverse voices and teaching techniques and virtual reality and all kinds of different things that could really drive exponentially in learning. And I, I'm probably, I'm probably thinking more in K through 12 here in all candor, Bob, than I am. And I don't know if I'm right on this. I think in higher education, most of the universities have really adapted fairly well to that. And if you go online and take some of those courses, you can see the impact And Linfield would be a good example. But I feel like we're, we're ripe for a, a breakthrough in online education. And I'm not talking about online degrees. I think that's one component of this, but it's only a small component of it. I think the idea of ongoing education and, and being able to educate people in companies for people's you know, personal hobbies and interests, boy, I, think, I think we're just scratching the surface. And I, I, uh, I haven't found any other companies that are out there and I don't wanna start naming names. They're all fine, but no, I don't think anybody's really leading the pack in that area. And I, I kind of feel like I'm sure somebody's, you know, some smart venture person or somebody's looking at this stuff and thinking, hey, somebody's got a better mousetrap in this area or come up with a novel approach to this. Um, but I think regardless of your beliefs on how long the pandemic's going to restrict our ability to easily move around, I think what we're going through is going to accelerate the use of online learning regardless of whether we re return in force to a classroom type of environment in the near term or not. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, Tony, um, I, I'm going to ask our producer extraordinaire, Bill Cozell, maybe in the 
episode notes for this to include a link to this other episode that I'm going to mention. But uh, one of the other digital all-stars, Sean Amirati, I noticed a few months ago that uh, his his whole his setup, his studio had changed and become uh, much more. Well, it wasn't just Sean behind a desk with a white wall behind him. He stands up, he's got a big monitor, he's got a whiteboard behind him and other things. And he said it's changed completely sort of how he conducts Interesting. meetings, you know, workshops yeah. with big companies, how he does his Carnegie Mellon business school teaching, how he works with some of the companies that his venture firm actually works with there. And he said it's much more interactive. So I think to your point of just don't, you know, just take, you know, a talking head in front of a classroom and just pop it up online. But rather, he said, you bring to bear all the different tools that online can harness and pull together with this. And he said, it's, it's been quite remarkable. And he said, they've gotten to a point either with, you know, workshops with big companies or in his teaching or with his portfolio of venture companies. He said, we've moved in the past few months much more quickly up this sort of learning curve than I ever thought would have been possible. Interesting. And he said, it, yeah. as you said before, it's inspiring people to come up and say, oh, well, if we can do that, then why can't we try this? So um, not a, uh, what do they call it, you know, classroom without walls, but a, a classroom without too many rules about, you know, this is how we do it. And, you know, that's that. And if you want any changes, wait six months until, you know, next semester. That This has got to be something we tinker with relentlessly, right? Yeah, yeah, and I think to your point, and, and you know, not a surprise that Sean's innovating in this area, given his background and 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 the the range, the diversity of of projects from academia to venture capital that he's involved in. I, I I love to see that. You know, I think one of the big challenges that we we face in a in a primarily remote world is that the brainstorming whiteboarding is you know the ideation and all that kind of stuff is one component of it. I, I think culturally what people forget about that experience is it's also actually a cultural bonding experience. Mm -hmm. What you're actually doing is you're aligning you know, ideas and thoughts. You're learning about this, these other people and, and there's actually a very profound connection that happens through that experience of, oh, this guy, Bob Evans, I, I never thought of that. How cool is that idea? And you come out of those sessions and maybe you, your actual takeaway is 15 to 20% of the content, but that doesn't mean that the other 85% of what went down is it hugely valuable. I, it, trust gets built. Um, the willingness to say things that may not make sense in front of your peers, you know, all those things. I think in a remote environment, until we understand how to do those things, we miss those things that I think, you know, the, we, we run a, a, a meeting at, at Thomas this morning where we were talking about this exact issue about, you know, that's what brainstorming and whiteboarding really does, but you don't tend to think about the, the halo benefit, if I can use that term or whatever you want to call it, we tend just to think about that 15%, if you will. Tony, the, the chief digital officer from Novartis that I mentioned recently, one of the anecdotes that he brought up, he said, one of the favorite parts of his job is he said he wanders around this. It's the uh, Novartis and Microsoft have jointly set up this thing of the AI lab. And he said, one of the things that I most enjoy about my job, I walk around down there and he said, I truly cannot tell who's Novartis employee, who are the Microsoft employees. He said, interesting. That's yeah. exactly that sort of yeah. uh, 
you know, infused thing where people get so focused in the work, the uh, interactive capabilities are, are there. Uh, and, and more so, I think it leads to that productive type of thing where people are focused on the problem, not like, well, wait a minute, you know, I've got to count the minutes here. Am I going to have to build them yeah. more now that I've yeah. Been, yeah. Uh, And, you know, when you've got, as he said, uh, one molecule out of 10 actually makes it into the market, there's a lot of progress to be made. So these new ways of, of fusing organizations, probably leading to that cultural breakthrough in a lot of areas that you just described, Tony, maybe also gets people tied in a little bit more to that, that, that data culture, right? They're focusing Absolutely. on the right things and engaging in the right ways. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, before I forget, Bob, speaking of data, <clears throat> we recently launched something. It's, it's free and, and your users might get a kick out of it. If you go to business.thomasnet.com forward slash TMX stands for Thomas Manufacturing Index. So we've put together exactly what it sounds like and we're breaking it down by vertical market. So your, uh, your listeners can go on and look at that. You can subscribe to our daily email newsletter and you know, have this sent to you. But it's showing some fascinating trends. And, and I think in the spirit, Bob, of your point on data analytics, what we're finding is people um, across our marketplace are starting to take this type of data and map it to broader economic trends. We got a group of folks that have been taking our uh, PPE sourcing data and overlaying infection data by state on top of that data. And guess what they found? PPE sourcing tends to proceed what ends up happening in confirmed infection data on, uh, on the pandemic. So anyways, I, I've become a data geek, as you can tell, but, uh, <laughs> but it, it's your, some of your listeners might really enjoy seeing it. And again, it's free and uh, we constantly update TMX so they can get a sense of what's happening in the industrial economy. Tony, uh, that's business.thomasnet.com forward slash TMX. Outstanding. Outstanding. Well, Tony, uh, always a pleasure talking to you. It looks like you've settled into the uh, new West Coast wing of, the, of the, the Thomas headquarters there quite nicely. I, I hope that that's going real well for you. It is indeed. And as, as always, Bob, it's great to catch up and uh, best to the family. And I look forward to our next conversation. All right, Tony, thanks a million. And folks, thanks to all of you for being with us here at Cloud Wars Live. Uh, we, are, um, we are really, I think, digging in on some interesting subjects these days. The, the feedback from all of you out there in the, the community, the, the listenership, the follow-up, has been heartwarming. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for being with us. We look forward to seeing you next time here at Cloud Wars Live.